Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As Jordan mentioned just a few minutes ago, we want to spend our time in that chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. We want to read the entire chapter, all 20 verses, before we dive into the text. So we'll begin 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Let me pray and then we'll... Look at the text together. Father, we do pray again this morning that you would open our eyes 
Cause us to see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we do pray this morning. Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica. That your gospel would come not only in word. But also with power. With the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as Jordan mentioned, we're in the second half of a two-part, very condensed series on vulnerability. Last week, Jordan preached from Psalm 139 about our vulnerability with God. Today, we want to look at our vulnerability with one another. Vulnerability is the quality or state of of being exposed, the quality or state of being exposed. In this sermon, I hope to build on the reality that when we're vulnerable before a holy God who tenderly deals with us like a bruised reed, which was prayed earlier in the service, we will in turn open our hearts and lives to the saints for the sake of the gospel. As we see in As we will see in today's text, being vulnerable with one another is a willingly and gladly opening our own life for the sake of the gospel, prospering in other people. So though dictionaries would define vulnerability as the quality or state of being exposed, I think we would have a different definition. We would say vulnerability is opening one's life to others for the sake of the gospel. Opening one's life to others for the sake of the gospel. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica, approximately 51 AD, while he was in Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can read about that account in Acts chapter 18. He was only in Thessalonica for just a few short weeks. It appears that Paul receives a report from Timothy that this young church is being tested on at least three specific fronts. There were most certainly more, but these three stand out in his letter. They were struggling with the death of loved ones. They were being persecuted in their city. And the the authenticity of Paul's ministry was being brought into question who was in so many ways a father to them in the faith. And in order to reground their faith, Paul once again points them to the gospel. He points them to their hope in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3 it says, constantly, this is what Paul says, bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and listen to this, steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of Of our God and Father. God's sovereign salvation was also brought to their memory by Paul, saying, Verse 4 Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So Paul's making clear to them that God has chosen you, he has saved you, he has brought you to himself. You, You placed your hope in Christ. He's reminding them of that. Also, the power of the gospel. Verse five, those first verse three, four and five consecutively there, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also 
in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So he's reminding them that their hope is in Christ and God has sovereignly saved them and that the gospel has power. And he attaches the authenticity of his ministry in the second half of verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul was saying, whatever slander or doubt they may be bringing to your mind concerning me, you remember how we proved to be while we were among you. So despite being slandered, Paul reminds them of their conversion and the promised salvation that came through his genuine and sacrificial ministry to them. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 say, Paul again, remembering that the Thessalonians' faith says, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what, what transformation took place? But also, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. So their gaze was fixed on Christ. They're waiting for his return, whom he raised from the dead. So he's reminding them of the resurrection of Jesus. He says that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So he's wrapping up all their hope again in Christ. Verse 10 gives us really our first glimpse in this letter of one of the main themes that is threaded through all five chapters of First Thessalonians, and that's the return of Christ. He wants to let them know. He wants them to be reminded that Christ will return. There's a second coming. And the return of Christ was set before them as an always present reminder of the hope that awaited those precious saints whose faith would endure to the end. The return of Christ would be a reunion with the departed loved ones that they were worried about and the long awaited reward of their suffering that they faced from the persecution there in Thessalonica. And that thread of the second coming that runs through Paul's entire letter to the Thessalonians was a source of encouragement and hope to them. And it's exactly why Paul continues to mention it time and time again in this little letter. Paul knows that he must write to the church to reassure them of the truth and power of the gospel, but also to remind them of how he lived his life among them. So let's begin our look at this letter by looking at the origin of the vulnerable. All right? What is the origin of the vulnerable? Look with me in the first two verses. It says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. The origin of vulnerability with one another is faith in God. He says, we had the boldness in our God. All of Paul's courage, all of his hope, all of his enthusiasm was wrapped up in knowing that God was his God. Paul says we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. It was faith in God that caused him to share the gospel with other people. There's no such thing as true vulnerability if God is not our God. You may be transparent, as Jordan mentioned earlier, but transparency doesn't equal vulnerability before God. 
The fact that there was opposition to Paul in Thessalonica and yet he still proclaimed the gospel to the people of the city is only further proof that he was compelled to open his life to preach Jesus to them. The most vulnerable person to ever walk the face of the earth is Jesus. And listen to this. God was his God. So Jesus would have made the same statements that Paul makes when he says we had boldness in our God. It was boldness in God that caused Jesus to live his life, to go to the cross and be crucified. That's why we find him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face. Jesus did prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. He's praying to his God. He was vulnerable to his God. He knew that if God was not his God, he had no hope. If God is not our God, then the motive of our vulnerability will not be pure. In addition to the origin of the vulnerable, we want to see the heart of the vulnerable. So we know that in order to even begin to be vulnerable to one another, we have to have our faith in God. But the second thing that I want us to see is the heart of the vulnerable. What, is, what does it look like to have a vulnerable heart before the Lord? And again, by vulnerable, we mean that one's life is open to others for the sake of the gospel. Look with me in verses three and four. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We says in verse three, for our exhortation, we'll see over and over in this chapter alone that Paul continues to mention his speaking, his exhortation, his proclaiming the gospel. That thread is just pounded in chapter two. Boom, 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 one after the other. He's preaching the gospel. But he wants them to know that that preaching, that message is not one that comes from error or impurity or by way of deceit. The first thing that I want to see is regarding the heart of the vulnerable is that the vulnerable's heart is pure and true. The vulnerable person's heart is pure and true. His exhortation didn't come from error, error or impurity or by way of deceit. What Paul speaks to the church in Thessalonica is nothing more or nothing less than the true, pure gospel of God. As a matter of fact, we see that phrase itself, gospel of God, pop up three times in this chapter alone. Paul's speech was right. It was accurate. It was truth. It was without error. And his speech was pure. There was no deceit in it. Paul's speech was but a reflection of the gospel in his own heart. As a matter of fact, after examining Paul's heart, God entrusted him with a unique task of proclaiming the gospel to the Thessalonians. God called Paul to go to that city to preach the gospel to those people, meaning God entrusted him. God approved of him to go and take this message to these people. But verse four says, but just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, there it is, his approval and entrustment. He says, so we speak. 
not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. I do not believe the text is saying Paul was without sin, but I do believe his heart was such that God both approved and entrusted him with the gospel. And after being laid bare, as we know Paul was on the road to Damascus, open before the Lord, Paul was entrusted with the mission of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The fruit of a vulnerable heart is gospel-saturated speech that is without error, that neither, listen to this, flatters its hearers nor seeks their approval. So when Paul goes to city to city to preach to the Gentiles, two things are true of of every time he speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One, he's not trying to flatter anybody. He's preaching truth. He's not trying to tickle anybody's ears. He's telling them the gospel. And he's not trying to win anybody's approval, though he would love for all to receive his message with gladness. He's not flattering anybody and he's not aiming at winning anybody's approval. For we never came, verse 5 says, with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. He wasn't doing it for selfish gain. God was his witness of that. That's a brave statement to make at any point, at any time in your life. If you attach God as witness to something you say, you better know that God is actually witness to that. And he says it. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. When your heart is vulnerable for the sake of the gospel, then that is exactly what you will speak to others. When you're vulnerable in your own heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the gospel is what comes out when you interact with other people. The gospel will not flatter the self-righteous, nor will it gain any glory for one who heralds its good news because the gospel is not about the messenger. It's not about us. It's about the message of Jesus Christ. It's about his death and his resurrection. It's about the power of God saving those who believe. The motives of the vulnerable are always Godward. When our motives cease to be Godward, then we cease being vulnerable for the sake of the gospel. Let me say that again. When our motives cease to be Godward, then we cease being vulnerable for the sake of the gospel. Not that being true and pure in your motives are rigid actions, but to invite us into a better understanding of the heart of the vulnerable. Paul gives us some tangible illustrations. Listen further to the heart that I believe Paul puts on display for us for those who are really vulnerable. The first is a vulnerable heart is a motherly heart. The vulnerable heart is a motherly heart. But he says in verse seven, for we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now I know that we may have a few of the men in the room who consider themselves to be manly men and they may squirm a bit here. But I want us to all pay close attention to exactly what Paul said. He said he was gentle among the Thessalonians. And then he compares his actions. Listen to what Paul says about himself to that of a nursing mother. So if we can 
as men get past our egos and adopt Paul's mentality, you'll find that he is not asking you to compromise your manhood. He's actually demonstrating real manhood by humbling himself to relate to others in a gentle manner. That's what a father does. That's what a good father does. That's what our heavenly father does. Surely we wouldn't question the heart of the heavenly father who has treated us with such gentleness. Another verse that's been already prayed this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Think about the degree to which a nursing mother goes to care for her children. A nursing mother anticipates the baby's every need. She looks with eagerness to satisfy both the physical and emotional needs of the child. She's ready to claim, excuse me, to calm the child's fears. She draws the child near for warmth and comfort. It's what mothers do. A nursing mom can feel the heartbeat of her child and the child knows the heartbeat of the mother. This is scientifically written about. Is not our God tender with us in this way? Does he not treat us the way a a nursing mom cares for her children? We too should care for one another with such tenderness. To continue to see the kind of affection that Paul had for these dear saints that he only had the privilege to be among for a few weeks is phenomenal. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you. How can you possibly say that after only a few weeks with a group of people that you didn't know before you arrived in their city and you had to leave only a few weeks later? But Paul says this. We were well pleased, the rest of verse 8, to impart to you not only the gospel of God, there's that speech again that Paul's never going to cease doing, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. So fond an affection for you, not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. Well, I want you to know the one Greek word, ambrose, that communicates the three English words, having fond affection. So to translate that one Greek word, we had to use three English words. And the Greek word literally means, listen to this, a violent shower. How do we get a fond affection out of the Greek word, a violent shower? Like if there's ever been questionable translation, that may be it. But I don't think it is. I think they nailed it. A fond affection. Having fond affection. Yes, that is the actual translation. A violent shower. Meaning here is a torrential outpouring of love. That's what Paul's communicating. Like the heaviest of rains that you can imagine. This is the kind of rain that soaks your clothes in the short run from the front door to the car. It's the kind that when you look out the window, you think, I'm going to wait 30 minutes and make sure that rain dies down before I go somewhere. The kind of rain that won't allow you to see a few feet in front of you when you're trying to drive. 
that kind of heavy downpouring. And Paul says, that's the way that I love you. That's how my love is for you. It's torrential. It's a violent shower of God's love upon you. Because the love was so strong, Paul was compelled to not only share, listen to this, the good news, but also his own life. Paul wanted to share his very life with them. According to the text, the Thessalonians were very dear to Paul. And I implore you saints here at Grace Church to love one another this way. And when you do, you make yourself vulnerable to love others with torrential love puts you in a vulnerable position. But I think God's word is clear that we should have a motherly, tender, gentle love for one another, to care for one another with the Ambrose kind of love. The second description of love that Paul gives for us is a fatherly love. So he clearly demonstrates a motherly love, but we also see a fatherly love. For you recall, brethren, verse 9, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Concerning our fatherly love toward one another, I would encourage you to once again mimic Paul's model. What does Paul say here? That we would endure hardships so as not to be a burden to one another. Is that how your mind works? I'll be honest with you. I have to war with my own mind. My mind goes to comfort. My mind goes to self so quickly. Very rarely am I thinking to myself, what hardship can I endure to not be a burden to those around me? To what distance can I go? That we would strive to live devoted lives to God and to one another. That all our interactions would be upright. That our behavior toward other believers would be blameless. A good father will not let his children have their own way, but points his children in the path of wisdom. Listen, to love like a father sometimes means that we have to be tough. It means that we have to call sin, sin. That we have to live devoted lives to do the hard thing. To live uprightly when it would be easy to cut a corner or to neglect this or that for our own comfort or to be blameless. Is there not one area where I can relax? But a father's love is diligent. And he'll set an example for his children to follow in the same way. Paul uses three words to describe his approach to the saints in Thessalonica. He says, Exhort, encourage, and implore. Verse 11. We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. We should exhort one another to excel still more. That's exactly what he does in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That as you receive from us 
instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So he's exhorting them to excel still more and that we should encourage one another. That's the word he uses. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That's what he says in chapter five, verse 14 of this letter. We should implore one another to admonish the unruly, to help the weak and to be patient with everyone. Thirty two times Paul uses the word you in the chapter in chapter two alone, because he is emphasizing the kind of fatherly love we ought to have to consider others before ourselves. It's you, you, you. Everything that Paul did was for the sake of the gospel in other people's lives. We have no further, we have to look no further than Philippians 2 to see the vulnerability of Jesus described in detail to us. Paul was only looking to Christ's example. And here's the example that Christ gives us on others before ourselves. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus certainly exemplified vulnerability. Jesus certainly exemplified fatherly love. The heart of the vulnerable is pure and true and gentle and tender and hardworking and blameless and considerate of others and encouraging and loving. But I want us to see not only the origin, faith in God and the heart, that of a mother and father, a good mother and father, but the aim of the vulnerable. Why? Why be vulnerable? What's the aim? He says in verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Our aim personally should be to walk in a manner worthy of God. But Paul's saying here, being vulnerable means that we would walk in a manner worthy of God to lead others to do the same. That's the goal. So that we would, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's whole goal here is that being vulnerable, opening his life to others for the sake of the gospel would lead others to walk in a similar manner. Listen to this. Vulnerability is contagious. When we're vulnerable, it's contagious. When one person is willing to be vulnerable, others will follow. Here's the good news about being vulnerable. It's not up to you to make others vulnerable too. Your role as a believer is to open your life and heart to others for the sake of the gospel. And then to trust God and the power of the gospel to accomplish his work. 1 Thessalonians, again, 1.5. This is what he says is true about the, Thessal- the Thessalonians. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. This is what the gospel did in them. Came in power and in the Holy Spirit 
And with full conviction, listen to what he says. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The aim of the vulnerable is to open their lives in order to produce mature saints resting in the power of the gospel. Is to encourage others to continue to rest in the power of the gospel. Well, we not only want to look at the origin again and the heart and the aim, but I want you to see the posture of the vulnerable in verses 13 through 18. He says this, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you, are, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men and hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they will always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. See, Despite slander, persecution, suffering, and satanic hindrances, Paul is in a posture of thankfulness to God. Verse 13, for this reason, we also constantly thank God. Paul faced all those things, and yet he's thankful. We all have difficulties. The church in Thessalonica was facing difficulties. Paul lays his out before them. He knows that they're struggling. Listen, God knows that we'll struggle in this life. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be hardship. You will face persecution. And yet, we see the posture of somebody who's truly vulnerable. Thankful to the Lord. A posture of Thankfulness. He is communing with God and is found in this letter to have a spirit of thankfulness. Again and again, he expresses that. Dear saints, be reminded that the vulnerable, those whose lives are open to one another for the sake of the gospel, find themselves in a constant state of prayer because they know that their own need for the gospel, and because they know their own need for the gospel, they're also compelled. To communicate that gospel to other people. When you really know your need for the gospel. You can't help but communicate that gospel to other people. Because you know they need it too. You're compelled to tell others about Christ. You're compelled to walk with others in Christ's likeness. Because you know of the own, your own need. So that when a brother or sister comes to you in Christ. They're on, they, can, they can and are only doing that because they know their own need for Christ. We're all in need of Christ. If any person in this room thinks they need Christ less than somebody else, they've lied to themselves. They are deceived. But we as believers 
should have a posture of vulnerability, a posture of thankful prayer. And I want you to see, before we move to conclude, a couple of things in those verses. One, as Tommy shared with us today, the catechism, we see the result of those who had not made themselves vulnerable to God nor others. They were so stiff-necked and they had made themselves hostile to all men. They weren't pleasing to God. And the result of that is they stored up wrath for themselves. It says that has come upon them to the utmost. Well, children, if you were here on those rugs earlier and you heard Mr. Tommy explain about this place of dread, this is the result of those who have not put their faith in Christ. These are people who are opposing God and his ways. They have not believed the gospel. And that place is reserved for them. That's what wrath to the utmost would look like. But I also want you to see what Paul says. He says that though he had been taken away from them for a short while, only in person, not in spirit. But he continues to communicate his love for them, that we were all the more eager with great desire. I love this phrase, to see your face. There's something personal. There's something personable about having face-to-face conversation. I'm not a big fan of communicating with someone, though it's certainly necessary, Tom, sometimes over the phone because I can't see their face. And I especially hate communicating over email or text message because... Not only can I not see your face, but I can't even hear your tone, nor can you hear mine. And so much can be read into those situations. But if we're face to face, then you can see the genuineness of our brothers and sisters as we communicate with one another. And you can see the sincerity of heart. Well, we want to conclude this morning by looking at the reward of the vulnerable. The reward of the vulnerable. So we have the origin of the vulnerable, faith in God. The heart of the vulnerable, true, pure, motherly, fatherly. The aim of the vulnerable to see other saints mature in Christ. And the posture, one of prayer and thankfulness before God. And then the reward. The reward of the vulnerable. Verse 17, excuse me, verse 19 For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. According to the text, there is a reward for the vulnerable saint. The great reward is this. The presence of our Lord Jesus. In the presence of our Lord Jesus. He says... For who is our hope and joy and crown? What's Paul doing all this for? He has a hope. There's a joy in this. He knows that there's a crown awaiting. One of exaltation. And he says, is it it not even you? you? Are you not that? But he mentions the place where all that comes to fruition. He mentions the time when this happens. He says, in the presence... Of our Lord Jesus at his coming. There's that mentioning again of the second coming of Christ. This is it. This is the good 
motive that Paul has. That one day he'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus with these fellow believers. The great reward is the presence of our Lord Jesus. Christ will return and when he does, we'll be ushered into his immediate presence. We'll be with him. What a glorious thought that we'll be in his presence. But the reward will only be compounded for the vulnerable. Not only do we get to be in the very presence of God, but we will be there with other saints that we have opened our hearts and lives to for the sake of the gospel. What a, what a beautiful picture that Paul can look past the, the slander and the persecution and all the difficulty and the struggling churches that he's, that he's planted. He can look past all that and he can see that a day's coming when Christ will return and that we'll be in his presence together. And it motivates him and it compels him. And the reward of that is greater than the momentary and light affliction that he is currently facing. And as further reward there in God's presence, we will be filled with infinite glory and joy. Whatever joy that Paul had as he thought about the future, as he thought about that gathering of believers in the presence of God, paled into comparison to the day that he actually tastes that. He says in verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. Can you imagine 1 Peter 1.8? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. An unspeakable joy to be in God's presence with you fellow believers. I'll be honest. As I look across the room, I get chill bumps on my arms. Hair stands up on the back of my neck as I think about being in God's presence with you saints. What a joy. What joy unspeakable. What glory we'll taste with one another in God's presence. Dear saints, be vulnerable to one another. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that despite all the difficulty in life, there's a greater joy that awaits us. Your presence. Father, I do pray that you would help us. That you would cause us by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love. That you would help us to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. And that we would promote the prosperity and spirituality of our fellow saints. And together we would sustain its worship, these ordinances, one that we're about to participate in, discipline and doctrines. Father, I'm thankful that we get to be actively involved in corporate prayer together and corporate worship together and small group life. To contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support and ministries and the expenses of this church. That we get to do that together with one another. And that we get to watch over one another in brotherly love. To remember one another in prayer. 
to aid one another in sickness and distress. And to cultivate sincere concern for one another's joys and sorrows. We get to do that together. To be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. And mindful of the commands of our Savior to secure it without delay. God, do all that. Do that in us. Give us the joy and glory of doing this together. And Father, I pray. I pray this morning that there's any among us who don't understand that vulnerability, who don't understand that joy and glory, that one anotherness that we get to experience. Father, I pray that you would make them jealous, that they would long for the power of the gospel to be real in their life. Father, we pray that you would save souls this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.